All right, kids, you are dismissed to children's ministry. Not sure what the significant was of the feet there right at the end. Just kind of left trying to interpret that. I don't know. I think if you come to Alpha, you get a free pair of shoes. So how's that as a motivator? <clears throat> Those were Alpha shoes they were wearing. Their lives will never be the same, nor will their wardrobe. <clears throat> let, me, let me highlight something that Kelly said in that testimony. She said, my mother-in-law invited me again. And I can't tell you how many testimony stories of people who have come to know Christ had their eyes and their hearts opened to the gospel through the Alpha Course is because they were invited again. And so I know it's very tempting to muster up just enough courage to invite somebody one time and to feel like, okay, they've been in my life, I invited them, I did what I needed to do. I can check that off and swallow and take my nervous stomach from out of my throat and just move on. Until you come this morning and God says, no, invite them again. <laughs> because you don't know, you know, the Bible speaks and it says, let he who has ears, let him hear. Now, whatever that phrase means, it indicates that there are moments in which we don't have ears to hear. And sometimes we're issuing an invitation to people that they don't have ears for what we're asking them to consider. And they say, nah, I'm not interested. But at other moments, you don't know when you're talking to somebody who all of a sudden their marriage has, has fallen on a difficult place. Or life is suddenly feeling empty to them right now. And then you invite them and they've got ears and they say, hey, I think I want to come to that. So you may have invited somebody two, three times to come to the Alpha Course. And we've had people say that. I was invited three, four. It was like the fifth time I was, it was the second time I attended. And then God met me. So as you pray and consider who God's encouraging you to invite, don't take off the list those who you'd be inviting again to the Alpha Course. All right, well, if you want to open in your word to Matthew chapter 6, we are continuing uh, a study, and, and this week and, and next week should bring us to the close of a study on the Lord's Prayer that was not just intended to teach us how to pray the Lord's Prayer, but to be aware of some priorities that Jesus put into the Lord's Prayer, that we need an awareness of this. This, this has got to make its appearance in the front part of our mind on a regular basis, maybe on a daily basis, this content has got to be in front of us. It can't just be historic, or I remember a time when I read a book about that or studied something about this a long time ago. It's got to be right there. And so there's a very limited number of things that Jesus highlights in this. But towards the, the end, the latter half of this prayer has kind of gotten bogged down is not the right word, mired in might be the right word, mired in issues of sin, unforgiveness, and evil that are in this world. And so that's a significant thing. You and I have to be aware of how am I going to manage the evil that's still in this world, that you and I live in a land that needs the good news of the gospel because we're surrounded by some bad news. And it's interacting with our lives, and it's touching us 
in some profound ways. And Jesus begins this prayer with our Father in heaven. So we have a heavenly perspective and a relationship with the God who is our Father. He concludes this prayer in verse 13 and says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. All right, obvious thing. You read that verse. Here's an obvious thing. If disciples in this day and age who continue to follow Christ are going to have to pray this prayer, then evil is going to be present, isn't it? You know, be careful that you're not reading the uh, heavenly only version of the Bible sometimes. Pro by the way, if you're into prosperity messages, which I kind of hope you're not, and if you wonder why I'm saying that, you need to come and ask me after the service, why'd you say that? Uh, but one of the great faults and fallacies of prosperity teaching is, is that it reaches into heaven and it over-establishes heavenly things on earth. That's the, one of the main faults of prosperity teaching. And what's, what trips us, us up in that is that it reaches and grabs something that's in the Bible and that is promised to us. It just locates it at the wrong address and at the wrong time. And it begins to make us ex uh, think and expect that, hey, we're, we're going to have something that feels like heaven, healed bodies all the time, and everything is going to go right for us, right? I mean, we're Christians, we're, we've trusted Christ, and we're believing big. Well, be careful that you're not trying to get something today that God didn't intend for you to have fully, fully today. So a disciple's going to pray this prayer. Deliver us from evil. And he's going to pray it with evil pressing in on his life. This is going to be a moment where you're going to be crying uncle in some way because evil is going to be turning your life inside out and upside down. And you're going to be crying out to God for deliverance. So don't wonder whether you're still a Christian when you do that. This is the disciples' prayer. You are still a Christian when you're praying that way. But th this, is, this is a big subject. In some ways, it's what drew me into this prayer um, so can I, can I just bring a quick note to last week's message? Last week we talked about evil inside, the evil on the inside of us, that what the Bible teaches about evil, it's, it's more like a viral condition that has taken up its residence in every human being. And so if you and I are trying to find the address of evil, I don't need to get past the end of my shoes. Evil has taken up its residence in my own heart. It's corrupted my heart. And so I have need of God's deliverance. I have need of God's deliverance. No matter how bad your evil is or the news headline evil is, I have need of deliverance from evil's power within me. And so if you want to know more about that and you weren't here last week, then last week's message may be helpful for you. But what about the evil that is out there? There's evil out there in this world. We come in contact with evil. I just want to make a side note. I don't have, an, this could be a whole message by itself and it's not going to be, but I just want to make a, a side note this morning. I mentioned last week that there are books out there being written that, that sound like this. You know, whatever happened to evil? Whatever happened to sin? And those books are being written because when you interact with life and you listen to what's going on in the world out there, we're not using these labels anymore. We don't use the same vocabulary words that the Bible uses. They've changed. And a lot of stuff as a result is beginning to be what I will call mislabeled and poorly defined. Right? I don't know who it was that said words mean something. 
but words mean something. And, and you and I are, are creatures that live our lives out of concepts. Right? There's a concept of things that get inside of us and we begin to live our lives out of what we understand that concept to be. So there's this concept out there called the family. What is that? It's got a definition to it. Is it God's definition or is it another definition? There's a thing out there called marriage. What is that? How do you define that thing? Well, we know in our country and back in the summer, our country decided to redefine what marriage is. So now it has a different definition. It means something different. Well, God's words mean something. And as I said last week, God has slapped labels on things. God has done that. It's not just a matter of whether the prude next door did that, whether, you know, whether your parents who didn't, you know, you know, my parents didn't like long hair, you know, like long hair, I don't know, long hair to my parents was evil. It just was. And I don't know, there was something in me that just made me want long hair all the more as a result of that. And is this what we're talking about? We're talking about stylistic things, things that come and go. So, you know, God deliver us from evil is really a prayer for God deliver us from long hair, you know. Or is that kind of stuff not what this is really about? We get confused in those things and we think life has changed. And let me just, you know, speak especially to young people. If you're, if you're 25 and under in here today, you are, you are in a, a desperate place in this category. Because the world has taken up redefining things and relabeling things at a pace I've never seen. I don't think history has ever seen before. All these changes that are taking place. And, and one of the things you're not noticing, you're, you're, you're noticing that, that there are some changes. But what you're not noticing, young person, is who gave somebody permission to relabel things? That doesn't even strike you as weird, does it? Somebody come along and said, no, 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 that's not marriage. That's marriage over there. Nobody throws a flag on that and goes, whoa, 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 time out. Who died and left you, God? Who said you get to change the labels on things? That, that doesn't even strike you as weird, does it? That should be more offensive than the new label. Because it's man operating in a role and in a posture that he was never given permission to do that. And so all of a sudden, all kinds of things in our culture are being relabeled. So the labels of evil and good are in the Bible. And some things that are now embraced as good used to be called evil. Abortion used to be unquestionably evil. But now, if you read articles on abortion, I meant to, to get this article, but it'd probably be too much material anyway. A New York Times article my wife had read and was quoting from it to me the other day. And as I listened to the words, the vocabulary words in this article, in an, in an article on abortion, there were noble elements, applauded elements of freedom and liberty and rights to choose. All of a sudden, abortion was a good thing. A woman choosing to have an abortion was 
having a surrounding words around that decision were freedom. That's a good word, I thought. I thought freedom was a good word. Liberty. Right? These are good things, right? But they're now associated with abortion, the taking of a human life. That used to be evil. Fornication. Sexual immorality. That used to be evil. People having sexual contact with each other outside of marriage was evil. Today, it's just common. It's just... It's just what we do. There's no alarm in it. Nobody, nobody gets this sense of outrage and hush. I mean, they used to do that. You know, if you were prudish, you kind of that stuff came up, and oh, we don't talk. We don't talk about that. Why? Because there was this accepted thought that that's not that's not okay. But it's okay now. It's not evil anymore. Which, by the way, you could fix the abortion issue if you'd fix the evil of sexual immorality issue, right? Nobody wants to impose the freedom to choose at that moment. You have the freedom to choose not to sleep with that person. You're completely free to do that. You can choose to not do that. Rather than create a life and then have to make a choice about what you're going to do with that life because that life has suddenly become inconvenient. Listen, this is not a small thing. When, when the label of evil got off of sexual immorality, that thing became something else in our world, didn't it? And millions of lives later that have been aborted are very much the result of a label that no longer exists on that. It no longer is called evil. I don't think for a second this stuff doesn't matter. Homosexuality. I don't know how much longer I'll be able to say from the pulpit is an evil without waiting for the uh, police outside when I'm done. That's not that far off. But you understand, the Bible labels homosexuality. And whatever adjustments our world has made, I just, you know, the question is, who gave anybody permission to change the labels? You know, the Bible labels things like covetousness, be, you know, coveting as evil. Come on, really? How many of you guys are okay with coveting? You know what coveting is, don't you? I have an old word. We don't use it a whole lot, but how about craving and wanting what isn't yours. Does that sound a little closer to home? Anybody got any problems with that? Anybody just kind of let loose on that? You know, you're, you're comparing lives and shopping on social media and you're looking at what they do and what you do and what they do and what you do and what you don't do and what they get to do. And you're coveting their life and their lifestyle. But see, nobody slaps evil on that. So we're like, well, that's all right. I can do that. That's okay for me to do that. Coveting is evil in the Bible. Did you know gossip is evil? This would be some good stuff for Christians to clue in on. 
right? Because we just like gossips. Well, you know, I just kind of said, you know, and I just kind of meant, and well, I thought they already, and I didn't think it was any big thing, and uh, how about we just update the label on that, right? Let's put gossip over here, and let's get a big old stamp out, our big evil stamp, and stamp it evil. Gossip is evil. It was evil long ago, and it's evil today, and it's got nothing to do with how long your hair is. It's not like God would say, oh, well, you know, I said that before the days of social media. So, well, you know, I didn't quite know how information was going to be handled in the future. So back then, back way back in the old-fashioned days, sharing other people's business with other people who don't need to be involved in knowing about their business, that was bad then. But today, it's just called a, a post. That's all. <laughs> right, we've, we're losing our labels, aren't we? Now, here's an interesting thing. The Bible labels these things. Mark chapter 7 says, he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery. Okay, there's three we can all say. That, that's evil, right? We're good with that? Theft, murder, and adultery. Those three should be on the list. But what about the rest of this stuff? Coveting, wickedness, deceit? That's telling lies sensuality, envy, slander, pride. Good night. If you, if you pulled slander and pride out, I don't think you could do a Republican debate. <laughs> I mean, right? If you just said, okay, no slander and pride allowed tonight, they'd all have to just like walk off the platform. Like, I don't have anything to say. I'm sorry. <laughs> Foolishness. This is what the Bible says. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person, right? These are evil things. Stop falling for the new labels. These are evil things when this was written. They were evil things from the foundations of the world. They are evil things today. Now listen, 25 and under generation. Listen to this word in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 5 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to you. When you see that word woe in the Bible, it is a pronouncement of judgment. It is God stepping in and saying, you've got no business doing that. It is wrong. And God is going to bring judgment on that thing. Now, how he brings judgment, whether he swiftly is going to come in and do something or he's going to let the natural consequences of things fall, however he does it. But when God pronounces a woe, he is saying, you are doing something that you don't belong doing and you've been doing it long enough. That's enough. So this relabeling of things is, is quite offensive to God even more so than whatever label we, we're recreating here. Now, here's my question for you if you're a young person. What, what authority establishes the labels that you use? Right? When you come in contact with human behavior and human activities, is that just, well, that's what everybody's doing. Is that the label you put on it? Well, you know, it's kind of like, it's not completely right, but it's not that big a deal. Is that the label you put on it? 
sexual immorality in all of its variety of forms, envy, slander. I mean, things that we talk about people, is, is that just kind of what everybody does? Or does it bear the label that God put on it? Evil. This is evil. Now, here's the great danger. Here's a great woe, as we said in the, in the prayer time earlier today. Evil is not a social construct. Evil's not being made up by this generation or the last generation imposing its views on this generation with some prudish fashion of what, how long they think your skirt ought to be. Evil in the Bible is attached to an evil being, a living creature who is promoting evil and its activity. So you can relabel stuff all you want. You have not changed what evil is. Evil is still evil, and it's just as dangerous as it ever was. And your new label on something didn't make it good. It made you think it was good. But as far as God has to say, and as far as the devil has to say, it's just as evil as it ever has been. And it will have the same evil consequences as it ever has been. So let's be careful about the evil that's out there in a world that's relabeling evil. Don't fall for the labels. Know the scriptures and be informed by them. That was a side note. But when we get to this prayer, let me, let me traffic in that evil that's out there. At some point, it's going to wash up on the shores of your life. And it's going to touch real things in your life. And it won't all be these gross, horrible categories. It'll be things that you love. Things that you're connected to. Things that are meaningful to you. Things that are purposeful in relationships and people. This prayer makes a giant assumption. It assumes that when evil reaches in and touches our life, and it touches our life in a way that makes us cry out, this prayer assumes that we will cry out to God in that moment and not turn away from him. Now, that might sound to you like a no-brainer. It is not a no-brainer. I want to bring that out to us today, and then next week we'll have a little further help with this important category because there's something about evil and its, its other side of the coin, suffering, because I, I don't know if I could find an evil in the scripture that doesn't have suffering that goes with it. Right? Evil, evil doesn't come with this sense of evil had its way right here and benefit and joy were the outcome. Evil tends to leave a scorched earth behind it of suffering in people's lives. And when evil and suffering touch our lives, this Bible assumes we will turn to God and we will cry out to God. But there are moments, aren't there, when evil is so unexplainable and so confusing and so disorienting and so impacting on our faith that it feels like the last thing in the world I want to do is turn to God who was supposed to be making sure this didn't happen to me. What happened? Did he fall asleep? Did he forget about me? This is horrendous. This is harming me. This good God, I, I don't know that I can go to him. And it's very tempting when evil touches our lives in significant, powerful ways. 
it's not a no-brainer that we're going to turn to God. But this prayer assumes something. It assumes that we will know something that will enable us to turn to God in the moment when evil finds us. Os Guinness, in an excellent, interesting book called Unspeakable, says, is there anything harder to face and figure out than evil? There's something in us that wants to figure out evil. Evil is quite simply the most serious problem in human life, the most serious problem in the contemporary world, and the most serious problem for our deeper human resort in life, our trust in God. Listen, at some point, you're going to experience evil in such a way that it's going to assault your faith. It's going to confront your faith. It's going to confuse your faith. And you and I are exposed to evil at an unbelievable level. Not only is it going to touch our lives personally, but it's published everywhere. Our devices remind us that somebody got shot across town. I get a notification, right? I don't know how your devices are, but I get a news notice. You know, the same news notice that tells me that there's a tornado warning tells me that a policeman was shot or that somebody was shot in this part of town just earlier today. So I get to hear about evil over and over and over again. What are you and I going to do when this awareness, awareness in the front of my mind, awareness of evil is so weighty to us and so prevalent to us? Listen, don't, don't be foolish here. It is going to have an effect on your faith in God. And some of you ex- have experienced that. John Frame says the emotional problem of evil is simply the agony we feel when we experience tragedy in life and we cry out, why, Lord? At some point, there is a a cry from so deep within us, and I want to say the cry that's in this passage that cries out for deliverance is living at that address deliver us from evil. Okay, this is a setting where evil has created an agony inside your soul. And there's something in us that wants an explanation. And I want to take issue with that. Because I don't know if an explanation will fix us. But we want an explanation. In our lives, if there is a war of all wars that's going on for you personally, for me personally, it is a war of faith. Right? Whatever wars are out there on this planet, there is this, there's this thing called faith. And ultimately, all war, all conflict is about that. What are you going to do with that thing in you called faith? I, I, I said faith is that capacity in us to believe to trust, to take shelter somewhere, to escape, to hope in a future, to find courage, to endure, right? That's what what faith is for us. And at some point, faith goes somewhere. Faith gets located in things. And there's a war, right? If we know ultimately this warfare is that there's an 
evil one in this world who's at war. Listen, what he's after, be clear about what he's after. He is after your faith. Jesus told Peter that. Satan, Peter, has demanded permission to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. What's he after? He's after your faith. And he's after your faith. So there's a war going on for our faith. And, and that is so critical because the Bible says that we walk by faith and not by sight. The Bible says the righteous man walks by his faith. So there's this whole realm of life that you and I, we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. We don't know what our future is going to be like. We don't know how we would handle circumstances or difficulties or, or disease or breakdowns. And that We don't know. So we walk into the future by faith. We believe something about the future, but what do we believe about the future? Well, that's going to affect us at an incredible level. And that's where our awareness comes in, right? Faith, faith has to see something. It, it's got to be provoked by something. It's got to be informed by something. It's got to be aware of something significant to us. Faith has to have that. Now listen, you, you may have come in here today and, and your awareness is focused on uh, a news item. Your awareness is focused on whatever's happening in the presidential race. Your awareness is focused on what the stock market has been doing lately. Your awareness is focused on something deep and effective and personal. Your awareness is focused on the divorce notice that finally went through. And it's redefining your life. Your awareness is focused on the, the personal mantra about yourself that plays in your head, that's been playing for years and years and years. What you say about yourself, what you feel about yourself, what you think your future is going to be, what you think you have to be in order to have something, things playing in your head. Faith is listening to all those things. Faith wants to believe them. That's what faith wants to do. It wants to believe something. And if that's what you're aware of on a 24-hour basis, well, your faith will flow toward that and you will begin to believe those things. Faith is kind of like water. Right? It's going to run to the deepest place. Right? Whatever is deepest in you, it's going to run there. Faith will drain its way into that place. So if you're deep, meditating on, all wrapped up in your own talents, your own abilities, news reports, economy, how your company is doing, whether your wife likes you today or not. If those are the things that, oh, that's what makes for a life for me, then your faith will run there because that's, that's what's deep in you. You've been digging that thing deep and the, and the water of faith is going to run into that place. And you'll find yourself putting your faith in those things. And more than likely, afraid we're going to lose in the war here of faith. Right in your outline, I said our, our meditation, contemplation, and awareness, they're like a constant shovel digging out the terrain of our hearts and minds, making us deep in something. Right? What I meditate on, God has given my mind an ability to get deep in something. Right? It's tragic sometimes. It's tragic. Because, you know, sometimes the, the thing that we're deepest in is our, our own personal mantras, you know. 
this happened to me years ago, and then I've been thinking this about myself all these years, and this is what's defining who I am, right? And every day, that mantra goes off, and it's like a shovel that just keeps on digging deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper, taking a few more inches off today and a few more, and that, that spot gets lower and lower and deeper and deeper, and we become more and more aware of it, more and more convinced of it, and our faith begins to flow in that direction, and we begin to believe that. My faith needs to see something else besides that. I am desperately in need of seeing something about God. Enough with being a specialist in me. In my world. And what's temporary, I've got to see something about God. Who he is. What he's done. Right? It's interesting in Matthew chapter 6. I don't know if I'll put this in your outline there. Matthew 6, verse 25. This is Lord's Prayer. A few verses later, Jesus is highlighting this sense of awareness, what my faith is going to be aware of. And he depicts the battle this way in Matthew 6, verse 25. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothing, right? What is that stuff? That's the stuff that you're aware of, right? And every day it's digging out a hole in your life for you to be concerned with, how am I going to pay the bills? You know, what are we going to eat? What are we going to wear? How is our provision? How is any form of a good life going to be in front of us? And I'm worried and I'm worried. And Jesus says, do not be anxious. Okay, great suggestion. You got any help with that? Well, yeah, he does. Verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Right? You're all anxious about this stuff. And what does he do? He redirects their attention to who God is and what God does. That's how he solves the anxiety problem. Who God is and what God does. Who is he? Well, he's your heavenly father. Isn't that how we started the Lord's Prayer? Our father who art in heaven. All right, now Jesus is unpacking that prayer and he's saying, this is why that prayer matters in your soul. Because every day you're going to wake up freaking out whether you got enough money, whether you can make it through life today or not. You're going to need to remind yourself you have a heavenly father. That's who he is. Well, what does he do? Well, he provides for everyone. Who has need? Even the birds that you don't even give a rip about. Every day he's making sure that they're taken care of. That's what he does. Are you not more valuable than they? Of which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field. Again, what's the remedy? It's what God does. Here's what God does. He maintains the grass. The stuff that you and I just burn up and cut with lawnmowers. He's maintaining the grass. He does that. Which today is alive, tomorrow is thrown into the oven. Will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. This is a warfare for faith, isn't it? 
Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. So what's the, what's the remedy for this warfare that evil comes washing up into our lives, causing our faith to stare into this deep hole that it's digging? How do I remedy that? Well, I remedy it with the knowledge of God. I need to know something deeply. I can't know something surfacy. And this is what scares me about being a Christian in a day when we read everything but God's word, everything but God's word, that we've become so shallow in the knowledge of God. And when evil comes, we are going to be caught off guard so desperately because the only thing that's going to rescue us from evil is going to be the knowledge of God. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 says, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Hang on to that word, boast. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And this is an interesting passage, right? In this passage, there are alternatives for us to boast in. Right? Things that we boast in, we boast in things that we, we're sort of proud of them. They, they are something. There's something impressive. This is impressive. We boast about it. We put our, our hope and our confidences in that, you know? It's like you're getting beat up by the neighborhood punk. You know, he's got his posse there, and you're little, scared to death, and up walks your big brother, who everybody in the neighborhood's scared of. All of a sudden, your attitude changes a little bit, doesn't it? It's gonna, all of a sudden, it's like, yeah. Come on now, man. You're boasting, right? You have this confidence now about you that you didn't have moments before, right? This, this, is, a, this is a confidence word. But what's interesting, it's the Hebrew word hallel, from which we get hallelujah. Hallelujah. Hallel, yah. Yah is short for Yahweh. Praise and boast in Yahweh. Praise and boast in Yahweh is what this Bible verse says. Let not the wise man boast in something else. You boast in Yahweh. You depend upon Yahweh. You look to Yahweh to be to you what you need him to be. Don't look to riches. Don't look to wisdom and man's smarts. Oh my gosh, we live in a world today that you, you know if you don't make your kids smart enough, they got no future, right? You know that, right? I mean, I hope you're getting them in the right school. I hope you're not sending them one of those knucklehead schools because that will define the rest of their life. They'll have no life. I promise you. Okay, so that, that thing in us, and we get all anxious about it, right? Because I've, I've listened to the world carve out a deep place that says, if you want to have a good life, you better get educated a certain way. Well, that sounds to me like what Jeremiah was concerned about. 
Let not the wise man boast that he's wise enough to do this on his own. He's got a good education. I got this. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Whatever it is that makes you mighty, whatever that makes you influential, whatever puts you in front of people and they make room for you, and that's impressive. However long you've worked at a job, however much you're the specialist in this, you're the best at this thing here. Well, let not that man boast in that. Let him boast in Yahweh. Right? This is vying for your trust. This is a fight for your faith. Now, there is coming a day, and none of us will escape this. I wish this were, what I'm about to say, I wish were not true. But there is coming a day when your war with evil will be like any other day in your life. Because evil doesn't sit in this world, nor does it sit in our life like this straight line. You can't graph evil in your life and find out, yeah, evil has been in my life. It's always looked just like this, so I'm prepared for it. No, evil looks like this in your life. It doesn't operate every day the same way. And this is what catches us off guard. Suddenly, evil showed up at a level that you had no idea evil could punch that hard and surprise you and cause that much damage. And in that day, you are gasping for what just happened. Ephesians chapter 6 says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. It's not just acting like every day is the same day. No, there are some day that you're going to call that day right there. You're going to call that day the evil day because it's coming at you differently. Ecclesiastes 12 verse 1 says, Remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Listen, if, if, if you're a, a young person here today, do you hear what this verse just told you? Remember your creator. Get to know your God. Know him deeply. Be a specialist. Quote God's stats better than you quote anybody else's. And do it while you're young. Before the evil days come. Be ready for the day that evil comes to you. That's not the day to break out the book. I mean, if you haven't, you got to do what you got to do at that point. But the Bible is saying that evil is going to come at you at such a level that you are going to need to know your God. I know when you're a young person, and especially young people growing up in, in our country that we've been afforded so much you know remember your life is like nobody else's life historically or around the world you know when puberty hit you were a couple years away from being married culturally outside of this country it wasn't going to happen when you were 30 it, it would probably happen when you're 15 16 you're going to be married you're, you're going to start 
having a family. You're going to have your own set of bills. You're going to be responsible to make a business work and to create an income and take care of people. You're just not going to be hanging out just trying to figure out, man, how do we schedule all this free time? Goodness, I'm, you know, I'm 25. I got nothing to do. It's like, who else has got nothing to do? Let's get together and do nothing together. The rest of the world doesn't live that way. But it might be a good idea that with some of that free time, you get to know your God. Because there is coming a day when evil is going to touch your life and it's going to turn you inside out and you're, and you're going to be upside down and you're going to wonder what just happened to me. History and human existence are littered with some evil days. You and I have been preserved from so much of this. Evil, evil, evil days. Evil that leaves you staring at that, pondering and puzzling and confused by it. I can remember watching evil and, 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 and it's sort of numbing me. Almost like I was punched in the gut and I literally would walk around the house for days sort of half there, half not there, just affected by what evil was doing. Right? You guys remember that? That's how I felt the days after uh, 9-11. Watching these stories. Mom who went off to work never came back. Evil. Taking that woman from her family, husband, little children, trying to figure out what do we do now? And it was, you, know, you remember hearing this story after story like that. I remember just walking around for days, this sense of, I was dazed by it, just how horrible. I remember, I remember when Sandy's grandchild was murdered in a carjacking. ATN had to have been one or two. How old was he? 11 months old, he was in the car, carjacker, stole the car, shot his weapon, and killed ATN. And that was somebody in here. ATN was the same age as Carly. I walked around for days just in a fog. How evil washes up into our lives. You and I are so amazingly sheltered from so much evil. This is an evil, evil world. Visit, visit some news here. Interesting thoughts here from Oz Guinness. He says, the scale and scope of evil has increased in the modern world. To anyone who thinks deeper than the morning headlines, the atrocity of September 11 forms part of the wider record of the dark catalog of human evil in modern history and pales beside the worst of evils, the Ottoman massacre of 1.5 million Armenians in World War I, and the Rwandan and Sudanese massacres in the 1990s in which nearly 3 million people died, are like a pair of bookends that frame the 20th century as the most murderous century in all history. Please don't buy into the idea of what's in the heart of man is basically he's good deep down inside. You're reading pop psychology. You're not even reading the news if you say that. 
the last century was the most murderous century in the history of man. Look how, look how much our technology is helping us, isn't it? It's making us more civilized every day. Leaving aside the 100 million human beings killed in the century's war, more than 100 million were killed by their fellow human beings in political repression, massacre, and genocide. Over 200 million people killed by somebody else. He goes on and points out some of the particulars. He said, Cambodia's Pol Pot slaughtered 2 million people, a quarter of his nation's population. This is the late 60s, early 70s, I think. A quarter of his nation. Can you imagine? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. This is not a history test. How many of you even knew this story about Pol Pot killing a quarter of his nation's population? Like, who paid attention to that, right? We're Americans. Stalin murdered 30 million 30 million people. Mao Zedong murdered 65 million people in China. There's three or four million victims today of the current civil war in the Congo. Adolf Hitler murdered six million Jews alone and then five million other people just in his death camps. And I'm staring at 9-11 where 3,000 people died. And I am dazed by evil. Listen, this is an evil, evil world that we live in. And at some point, that evil will find its way to your door. And, and it, will, it will take your breath away. You remember the day that evil visited Job's life? Satan, the devil, the broker of evil was involved. And in one day, this man lost 10 children. In one day, he lost all of his livestock and his herds and all of his business and all of his servants were killed in one day. That's some deep digging right there. How do you feel about life now, Job? Where's your faith now? Well, amazingly, in Job chapter 1, it says this, Then Job arose, he tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. That's staggering to me. There's a few people in here who have lost children. Listen, nobody's in Job's category. Nobody. But there's some people who have had some experiences like this. Can you imagine losing all of your children? In one day. And you turn to God and you say what to him? Well, he fared amazingly well on that day. Shortly after when evil began to touch Job's body and he began to break out in disease 
And his wife now watched this evil spread from her children to her husband. She did not fare so well in that day. Do you remember what she finally said to Job? Job, you still stick to your integrity? You're clinging to God? Job, curse God and die. She couldn't stand it anymore. Evil had made her life so not understandable. This is so confusing to me. I don't know how you can hold steady, Job. I don't, I, I've lost it. I, I, I've lost my way. These horrible events have so confused my faith. And eventually, Job would not manage well either. I'm going to give you a zoom down of, of his response in just a second. But can I just make you aware of this because I know sometimes we just want to put such a pleasant face on everything and we want to put expectations on everybody to have a pleasant face all the time. There's not a lot of people who have a better resume in the Bible than Job. Job is referenced by God as an amazing man who trusted God. And I imagine his wife was an amazing woman as well. And they both are going to come to a place where their faith is upside down, their world is inside out, and they're scratching their head. They're going, I don't understand any of this. And I don't even think I understand God. And listen, this, this is my concern. These were not people who were shallow in God. These people were deep in God and there came a day when evil touched their lives and they had a hard time keeping their faith from flowing in another direction. Remember, Os Guinness says this, the plain fact is that all does not go well for all human beings. Most of us are well aware that life is full of evil and suffering, that none of us is immune and that faith provides no exemption. Just because you trust God doesn't mean you're exempt from evil touching your life and making you cry out, cry out the way John Frame says. The emotional problem of evil is simply the agony we feel when we experience tragedy in life and we cry out, why, Lord, why? Evil is an interruption. Evil is a, is a disruption. Evil is like, like static. That suddenly every, life was just kind of being broadcast and all of a sudden there's this loud pop, a disruption. Evil has stepped in and you, and you step back from that. right? You guys remember when we had radios that didn't operate the way they do today? You, you could be listening to a game and all of a sudden... And, then, and, you know, the guy next door is using a saw and all you can hear is the saw in this thing. That's right. That's not the way this is supposed to work. Evil's like static. It just comes into our lives and it's disruptive and it's confusing. What is that? This isn't the way it's supposed to be. And at some point, you're going to respond to that. Job finally responds with that cry of agony of why is this happening? You know, what is it about us that, that we think an explanation will fix us? 
right? Something's happened, and we think, we know what will fix me? What will fix me is an explanation for this. That'll fix me. Really? Will it? Are you sure? Sounds like it might, but... And I'm curious for explanations. Remember that verse in Ecclesiastes? Evil days come, and the years draw near, of which you say, I have no pleasure in them. You know that you can be a Christian and have evil days come, and as you look at those evil days, you can say, I have no pleasure in these days. I don't think you're violating something about being a Christian in that moment. Those are evil days. They, they don't contain pleasure in them. And part of this series sits inside of me strangely because the, the last few years of, of my life and my wife and I's life have been evil days. And there has been a significant lack of pleasure in those days. You guys know in a matter of two years and three days, I lost my whole family. Suddenly lost my mom. Not suddenly lost my dad. He was 96. So he was ready to go. <laughs> suddenly and tragically lost my brother. And, you know, in the midst of that season, just during part of that and earlier, we had lost two members of Gina's family that we were extremely close to. So there was all these departures from our lives, departures from people that we were attached to, that meant something to us, that were part of who we were. Death came. And then we had part of that season, you know, if you guys have been in the church for a while, we're part of a bigger group of churches called Sovereign Grace, and Sovereign Grace was going through some upheaval, some unpleasurable days. And during that time, there were eight pastors that I had some deep friendships with through the years, 10, 15 plus years of friendship together, eight pastors who all departed from Sovereign Grace. So I just, I just began to recognize, because this was sitting on me emotionally, was just a miserable feel. I began to recognize this. I, I'm, I've had enough of this departure thing, this people departing from our lives. I just traveled to Shreveport to do a funeral for really the last of my mom's relatives, my uncle. I was very close to growing up. You know, death has that sense of, well, death is a natural part of life. Listen, th there's something in us that departure is not an easy thing to manage. Because in the garden, there wasn't any departure in the future. Sin came in and introduced departure. Adam and Eve weren't like, hey, you guys, you're going to love the next 60, 70 years, and then after that, you're, you're going to go your own way. Why don't you die? And why That's not how it was created. So there's an evil that touches our lives in these moments. My, my brother died under evil circumstances, evil 
touched our lives in his tragic death. He's 54 years old. He's not supposed to be dead. There came a moment for Job. Let's see if I can do this quickly. Where in Job chapter 28, Job is wrestling with life. And he has finally got to the point where he now is asking, what just happened to me? And he has scratched his head and scratched his head and he's looking for an answer and he can't find an answer. And he keeps looking and he still can't find an answer. And he says, you know what? Man is so smart. Man can dig mines into the ground and can find silver that no one knew was there. He can find precious jewels and iron and gold. Nobody knew that was there. Man figured out a way to dig it out and find it and bring it into his life. But, but where can you find answers? Chapter 28, verse 20 says, From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It says it's hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddoned and death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. We've heard that there's some answers out there. It's just a rumor to us. Are you you sure an explanation will fix you? Because the Bible seems to depict that there. We might be hard-pressed to find some explanations for some things. How many of you have gone through suffering and you know, and I I will say this this has been my experience, I know there's an answer out there. I don't know what it is. Keith, why do you know there's an answer? Because I know something about God. It's not the answer that I know. It's the God who has the answer. That I know. That's what's rescued me from not letting evil drown me. I still don't know the answer. And I got a lot of questions. But I do know this God knows the answer. And in this, in this moment, listen, Job is turned upside down and inside out. And maybe you're going to identify with this, so please give yourself a little room just for a second here. Job chapter 29, this is where God is with his, this is where Job is with his questions. Job again took up his discourse and said, Oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me. What does that imply? Where is God now? He's not watching over me. When his lamp shone upon my head, and by his light I walked through darkness. And I was in my prime when the friendship of God was upon my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were all around me. My steps were washed with butter and the rock poured out for me streams of oil. When I went out to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, the young men saw me and withdrew and the aged rose and stood. How respected Job's life was. And then he says in chapter 30, verse 9, Now... I've become their song. I'm a byword to them. They abhor me. They keep aloof from me. 
They do not hesitate to spit at the sight of me. Verse 16, he says, now my soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have taken hold of me. The night racks my bones and the pain that gnaws me takes no rest. With great force, my garment's disfigured. It binds me like the collar of my tunic. God has cast me into the mire and I have become like dust and ashes. I cry to you for help and you do not answer me. I stand and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. You lift me up on the wind. You make me ride on it. You toss me about in the roar of the storm. I know you will bring me to death. God, you're, gonna, you're just going to kill me. Verse 26 says, when I hoped for good, evil came. Right? This, this man is upside down, isn't he? This man who had trusted in and believed in a God who he could look to, who would protect him, who would be something to him. Now, all that picture is confused in this moment. This is quite a man whom God has great respect for above anybody else on the earth. Is there anybody here who thinks this day can't come for you? What does Job need in this moment? Well, it sounds like he needs an answer. That's what he's looking for. God, where can you find an answer? Where is understanding to be found in all this? Finally, Chapter 38, verse 1, God answers him. It says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, What? What will God say when all this evil has touched this man's life with no reason, no explanation? God, what will you say? And for the next 126 verses, God never answers why. Never. Does God meet Job with what he needs? Yes, he does. What did God say to Job when he finally speaks to him? 126 verses worth of, Job, this is who I am. And this is what I do. And this is what I've done. Apparently, when evil touches our lives... It, it may not be answers that we need. It may just be to know the God who is God. Remember your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come. You, know, you don't have to be a specialist in explaining why the evil happened, but you do have to know this God very well. 
And in Job's moment of great blindness, where he is blinded by all this and confused by all of it, what he still needs is clarity on who God is. And for 126 verses, God tells Job who he is. And in the end, Job backs away from the why question and just walks away from it. If I'd lost 10 children and all that, and I'd been living in this physical condition, I wouldn't imagine anything but a really, really, really good explanation from this God would suffice. But apparently, that's not true. Because Job is healed in some way by a revelation of God. Apparently, you and I need to know God more than we need to have answers to some things in our lives. You know that God who is in the beginning of this prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, you're in heaven. You're not dwelling here. You're not in this realm. You are above it all. You are beyond it all. And you are holy. There's no one like you. That's the God who at the end can be trusted. Because I may not have all the answers, but he does. He really does have all the answers, right? This rumor about understanding that no one can seem to find, Job says. He goes on the end of that chapter in verse 23 of chapter 28. He says, God understands the way to it. And he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and he sees everything under the heavens. Man looks for answers and Job has to begin to be aware. I can't seem to find answers for this, but there are answers and God knows them. And God says this. I'm going to just close with this thought. Eric, you can come back up here. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Here's the end of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or or evil. This is God saying there are some things in this world you leave them to me to manage. Don't worry about that. But God, do you understand the evil that's touched my life? Do you understand what somebody did? Do you understand the consequences that it's brought to me? God, I want to understand. I want this to be resolved. I want justice to take place. God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Listen, when evil touches your life, you you may not be able to stare at the evil and at the circumstances of life and the people that are affected and dissect it and say, okay, okay, this moved and then that affected that and then this happened over here and I see that's a good thing there and that's a good thing. This is really bad. I wonder if this bad over here outweighs the good over here. Did enough good get done by these circumstances for me to conclude this is really okay, God. It's okay for it to have happened this way because I do now see enough good 
over the evil for me to be okay with it. Do you understand? I don't think we'll ever get to see that. This side of heaven. But what if God sits with me and says, Keith, I've seen everything. Everything pertaining to this and more. Every secret thing, every activity. And I will bring every deed into judgment. I will resolve it all. I will judge everything and I will put it all in its place exactly where it needs to go. You just need to trust me. That's God's answer to Job and his situation was far worse than any of ours. But here's where we are at the end of that prayer. Evil has touched our lives and it will touch it again. And in that moment, God expects that what we will do when evil touches our lives is we will turn to him and we will cry out to him to deliver us from evil. We will not turn away from him. We will turn to him because we know that he is my father. He takes care of birds. He has not forgotten me. And I know that he is in heaven and he searches out everything. He has a vantage point where there's nothing hidden from him. He has every circumstance fully analyzed. And there's coming a day where he will put everything in exactly the place that it needs to go. I don't know whether that's next Tuesday or a thousand years from now. I don't know that. But I do know that the God that I'm looking to as my father, he promised he will do that. He will do exactly that when exactly the right time comes. Now, I don't want to rush here, and I know I've taken a long time today, but I don't want to rush here because I am I'm concerned that there are some here who are in agony this morning because evil has touched your life and you are gasping for an answer. You may be here and it's been years of some physical infirmity racking your body. And every day you wake up and you manage pain. I was with a man in Philadelphia, a pastor in Sovereign Grace. This happened to be what he told me was his 27th anniversary of a headache that has never gone away. That can sometimes be debilitating. He is in chronic pain for 27 years straight. I asked him some of these questions. How do you walk away from that convinced God is good? Why? 27 years. I mean, don't you just start filling up the questions? Why? Maybe there's been some sudden tragedy in your life, a sudden death that never... It shouldn't happen that way. You're left going, why did this happen? Or a, a divorce that happened that rocked your world. 
made it hard for you to ever trust anybody again, put you in a place where your life is a mess now. You can't figure out which bill to pay first. You're like Job, trying to find answers. Why? If wayward children, the grief of watching them make one mistake after another, you're going, why, God, why? And then God answered Job, and he will answer you. I don't know if he's going to give you the answer you're looking for, but he will answer you this way. He will give you more of him so that you can stop asking that why question the way you have been. Let's stand up together. Lord, evil in its wide variety and with its deep effects of suffering goes to work in our lives digging deeper and deeper and deeper, raising more and more questions, making us wonder about who you are, whether we're safe if this happened, what else could happen? How out of control will things get? And the deeper those questions go, the more our faith begins to run like water into those deep places. And we begin to question, God, who are you? Who will you be to us? What will the future be like if these events, unscripted, unplanned, suddenly showed up? What else could show up? Lord, we join a chorus of voices of a people who struggle when evil intrudes to make sense of what does it mean. God, there are needs in this room, Lord. There are desperate moments. There is agony in this room that cries out to you looking for an answer. Lord, you have heard the cries. God, I hope today we would make room for not your only response, but certainly a important response. When you answer us from the whirlwind of life, what will you say to us? What do we need to hear you say to us, God? What do I need right now? Lord, do I, do I need an explanation? Or do I need you? Do I need you to do the math on this thing? Show me which came first and which weighs more. And what are all the positives and negatives? Lord, is, is that going to fix me? Or God, do I just need you? A deeper awareness of who you are and what you have done and what you will do and who you will be in my life. God, help us this morning to remember our Creator. Before the evil days come, days in which we will have no pleasure in those days, but God, we will need you, perhaps need you more than we've ever need you for those times. 
God, evil seems to be getting more and more publicity. And we seem to be a Christian world that's becoming thinner and thinner in the knowledge of you. Lord, that's a bad recipe. Lord, there are evil days coming and our knowledge of you is growing weaker. Lord, how will we stand in the evil day if we don't know our Creator? My burden in this series, in this message, is, Lord, that you would strengthen our awareness of what we need to know. God, we need to know you deeply. Those that are here this morning who are in agony, Lord, would you give their hearts an awareness of what you are saying to them about you, about what you've done, and about who you will be, and that you will manage every detail, and there's nothing hidden from you. God, who is our Father, who is in heaven, nothing is hidden from you. There are no secret places. And you will bring everything into judgment, whether good or evil. Lord, you are on top of this. God, would you let us find some relief from the why question and delve deeply into the who question of who you really are. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I bless you guys.